President Donald Trump wasn't named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. But perhaps no other person dominated the news like Trump did in 2017. As part of 2017 Top Stories of the Year on Smart Talk, we look back at the issues, controversies, and changes initiated by President Trump and his administration. On Smart Talk, we often speak with people throughout the South Central Pennsylvania region for conversation on national issues. That's what we did throughout the year. Up front, even months after Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in the November 2016 election, many still wondered how Trump won and won Pennsylvania, a state that hadn't voted for a Republican presidential candidate since 1988. Berwood Yost is the director of the Center for Opinion Research in the Floyd Institute for Public Policy at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster and co-author of the 2016 Pennsylvania presidential and U.S. Senate elections, Breaking Pennsylvania's Electoral Habits. It was the first hard research into how Pennsylvania voted. Yost appeared on Smart Talk last October. What are those issues that... They looked at Donald Trump and said, this is why I think he's a better candidate than Hillary Clinton. Well, I, we started talking about the election fundamentals, right? And uh, people who watched this stuff closely knew that there were economic issues that were going to drive voters' choices. And that that wasn't um, the economic growth evident in the United States was favorable for the Republicans. It wasn't high enough to make it a, a slam dunk for the Democrats. So I think... That economic factor and the factor that you had fatigue with Democratic leadership after two full terms, um, that made it possible for a non-traditional candidate to uh, be successful because people were willing to search for an, uh, an alternative. The other factor that goes into this, Scott, is you know the unpopularity of both candidates. Yeah, can I just add something here because th this blew me away. Y your poll showed that uh, at one point, and it pretty much ended up here, that Trump had an unfavorable or a favorability rating of minus 29 mm -hmm. where Clinton had minus 2. So both candidates were unpopular but a 27 point difference and he still wins the state. That's amazing. It, it was un probably unprecedented. I mean, normally, when, when we've looked back at past polls, uh, normally the candidate that has a negative rating is going to lose, right, a negative favorability rating. Um, in this instance, we had both candidates with negative favorability ratings. And as I said, 16% of voters felt unfavorably about both candidates. So, you know, that factored into the decisions that people made. I mean, our caller talked about voters being more sophisticated. And, you know, Sure, I'd like voters to certainly be sophisticated about their choices. But if you're using sort of the things that you see in your everyday life about um, the direction that the country's heading, it, it does make sense if you think about, um, you know, the, the place-based issues. If your local area economically isn't thriving, um, if you are feeling socially uh, or culturally you know, that your culture is ignored or that your, you know, your, your political needs are ignored, you're going to vote for change and you're going to take a flyer. I think that's one of the things people don't – we haven't talked a lot about. Hillary Clinton was basically the de facto incumbent. She was so well-known. Um, people thought they knew they were, what they were getting from her. And the fundamentals told us that there were a lot of people that wouldn't be happy – about continuing the status quo. And I think many of those people said, hey, let's take, you know, let, 
let's take a flyer. Let's let's give this uh, change a chance because we need change. And that's actually something that's very clear in our paper. Change was really what was driving a lot of this stuff. People felt that there was a need for change. They weren't satisfied with the direction of the country. Uh, they weren't satisfied with performance of the, pres- the existing president, President Obama. And that was an indicator of vote choice. Those people voted for Trump. There were a lot of other people, a good percentage actually, that voted for Trump because he wasn't a traditional politician. Correct. I just personally heard so many people uh, who voted for Trump who said that I like it that, okay, now they would say not politically correct, but I like it that he criticized the media. I like it that he would take on the people who disagree with him. And again, it seemed as though they focused on that aspect of it. Yes. Like, and didn't even worry about the issue. It's just that I like his personality. He's different. Right. No, I think there's no doubt that people were, were willing to, uh, they were looking for someone to shake up the status quo. And they thought he was the best candidate to do it. And remember, he didn't win in a landslide. No, he, he won by close. less than 50,000 votes out of, what, six million casts, something like that. So, I mean, it was an incredibly closely contested race. I think a more traditional Republican probably would have won by a larger margin, given the fundamentals that we expect here. But I, you know. I, I think that there were a lot of people who wanted to see some change. Uh, and I can remember talking to a number of people who who voted for, for Trump who, you know, expressed just that feeling. We need a change and we're willing to try this guy. And that's one of the questions moving forward that we raise in our paper. Just last week, a massive tax overhaul bill was approved by the Republican-controlled House and Senate. It was seen as the first major legislative victory for President Trump and his administration. On Smart Talk, we heard from both supporters of the tax plan that the administration touted as a major tax cut for the middle class and opponents who saw it as a giveaway to the rich and corporations. Republican Congressman Lloyd Smucker of Lancaster County supported the tax bill. Essentially, it helps uh, individuals and families by lowering rates, uh, asking less taxes of every uh, income bracket, and putting more money back in the uh, pockets of uh, low- and middle-income Americans. Uh, Simplifies the system. Uh, 95% of those who file as individuals will use the new standard deduction. Uh, Give them more time to spend with their families rather than uh, spending time filling out uh, their, their tax forms or paying someone to do that for them. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is uh, what it does for our economy. And essentially, our current uh, tax structure for corporations is not competitive with those uh, around the world. So we have a, a lower corporate tax rate in this bill. It'll go down to 20%. That's down from 35%, which, as I said today, is the highest in the industrialized world. We essentially today incentivize corporations to take their investment and their jobs offshore. So we're changing that. This will bring jobs back on shore. It'll create more opportunities uh, in jobs, and it's going to increase wages because we're going to see an economy that uh, jump-started through this bill. 
This is a complicated bill, and it's been analyzed from all angles from what we know of it so far. But before we talk about individual taxpayers, let's talk about that corporate tax rate. Uh, Those corporate tax cuts would be made uh, permanent. And as you said, the idea is to help American business. And uh, the idea behind that, of course, is have businesses reinvest, maybe hire more people, more maybe wages go up, as you said. But some have already said that those profits would go to their shareholders. Is there any way to control that to make sure, I mean, you can't tell a business how to use their money, but that a majority of those businesses do reinvest and hire people? They do. Well, the good good news is this isn't the first that this has been done. We're not reinventing the wheel. Uh, This was done in the John F. Kennedy presidency, and it was done under Ronald Reagan. And both uh, times that we cut rates, uh, we created conditions where businesses were willing to invest their capital. They grew jobs. The economy grew. Wages grew. And we know that's exactly what's going to happen in this case as well. But that's already happening right now. I I mean, I... In in large part, in anticipation of this bill. So for the last uh, two quarters we've had between three and four percent growth the stock market is all-time high optimism of business owners of all sizes is at all-time high and it's because of the anticipation of this bill and it's because of what we're doing on regulatory relief as well congressman how do you how do you know that for sure because even in the uh, last years of the obama administration economic indicators were going in a positive direction they were, um, but you know, I uh, get out in my district, talk to uh, business owners and families all across the district, um, and I, I didn't surprise me at all, uh, Scott, when I first heard that we had three percent growth in the uh, second quarter of this year, uh, because I was out talking to businesses and they're excited about the direction that we're going. And I'm absolutely convinced that not only is it already starting to jumpstart the economy, but it's going to result in sustained growth over a long period of time. Uh, individual tax rates, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, most of the analysis is saying that uh, there will be a tax cut for uh, a majority of American and Americans in the there first will. few years. But except for the most well-to-do, those with higher incomes, that in a few years from now, that some of those people will be seeing tax increases. Well, that that assumes that we'd have to snap back to today's rates. Um, And we're doing this bill through a vehicle called budget reconciliation, so we're constrained by by that vehicle. Um, I would love to see those tax rates be made permanent. Uh, and in fact, I think future Congresses will do that. They'll see that this is working. Uh, there'll be plenty of opportunity to further extend or make those rates permanent. So I don't think that you're going to see uh, you know, those rates snap back to what we are seeing today. Pennsylvania Democratic U.S. Senator Bob Casey was a vocal opponent of the tax bill. So let me start off with uh, the basic question, Senator. What don't you like about the tax overhaul? Well, it's a long list, but <laughs> the fir- first, uh, first and foremost, I think it's a, a giveaway to the super rich and uh, a giveaway also to huge multinational corporations. And when you have that much of a giveaway to, in, in both instances, you foreclose the possibility of giving a truly unprecedented um, or at least substantial 
middle-class tax cut. It's just the, there's only so much revenue. And um, that's, that, that's the, the tragedy here is the middle class could have done a lot better and we could have grown the economy uh, as a result of that because you put, you put more money in the pockets of the middle class, the economy grows. Um, but they, the Republican majority chose uh, chose not to do that. And we're going to talk about all those things. So, But I, I just want to kind of backtrack on something you just said. So you don't necessarily oppose a tax cut or legislation that would cut taxes. It's this bill you don't like. Yeah, there, there was certainly I voted for um, tax cuts before. I've also voted for tax increases. But um, in this case, there were there was a huge opportunity because the last time that United States the United States Congress did this was 31 years ago. So this opportunity to give the middle class a, a substantial tax cut, uh, to to give help to corporations, but also to 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 um, grow parts of the tax code that help uh, families grow and, and help children, the earning income tax credit, the child tax credit. These were this was a big opportunity maybe for the only time in the next 10, 20, or 30 years, uh, to turbocharge uh, efforts to lift kids out of poverty, to grow the middle class. And so it's really about helping the middle, but also those trying to get to the middle and having a better workforce down the road. And unless you have a strategy for children, and I know some people don't think of that in the tax code, but it's, it's already there. Why not grow these strategies like the child tax credit strategy by using the tax credit? in the earned income tax credit, why not use this opportunity to really make a breakthrough and, and have a transformative impact on those um, on the families in the middle or trying to get to the middle? Instead, they dedicated $1.3 trillion, and that's with a T, to big corporations. Now, I'd, I'd certainly sit down and work with any Republican that wanted to give a, a corporate tax cut, but my God, did it have to go down to 20% at all costs? And um, that, that, that became a real point of contention. It's one thing to give our corporations a, a tax cut to be more competitive. It's another thing to spend $1.3 trillion and make it impossible to give the middle the kind of cut that uh, they should get. I think also that for your listeners, one of the best places to go to look at the analysis is the so-called Tax Policy Center, TPC. And you can see in there the most recent report. It was just issued uh, this Monday, um, based upon the Senate tax bill. Was that uh, you know if you, if you look at just two income groups, fifty thousand to eighty-seven thousand, uh, versus the seven fifty and up, which is really the top one percent. So if you're between fifty thousand and eighty thousand, eighty-seven thousand, in 2019 you're getting a 1.4 percent tax cut, which is a tax cut, uh, but the the top one percent, people making seven hundred fifty grand a, month, uh, a year and up, they're getting one point eight. So they're already ahead of you by point four. And then twenty in twenty twenty five, six years later, uh, they're a full point ahead of you. The the 80, fifty to eighty seven gets one point three. The top one percent gets two point three. So the top one percent does better in nineteen than that fifty to eighty seven thousand uh, dollar taxpayer or household. And they do better in 2025. And I don't even want to talk about what happens in 2027, because that's when people get a lot of people's tax cut goes away or in many cases, taxes go up.
You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. President Trump took the bold step of pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement that almost every other nation on Earth had signed on to. The Paris Agreement included plans for nations to reduce carbon emissions that contribute to climate change by a certain deadline. Trump saw the Paris Accords as putting the U.S. at an economic disadvantage. In November, a conference was held in Bonn, Germany, where the world made more plans toward reaching their goals. Dr. Donald Brown, professor of sustainability ethics and law at Widener University Commonwealth Law School in Harrisburg, talked to Smart Talk from Bonn. So let's talk about the United States pulling out of uh, the, the Paris Climate Accords. And by the way, that cannot officially occur until 2020, from what I understand. But the Trump administration has already said that's going to happen and have made moves to do that. So what has been the attitude, from what I understand from what you've told me uh, in our communication, that this is like the big topic of conversation, the United States pulling out of Paris? Yeah, I've been coming to these uh, negotiations. Uh, this is my 15th year I've been to them, and I know a lot of people, and they all come up to me, and the conversation immediately begins with how outrageous, from their point of view, the Trump administration is. Uh, not only did he pull out, but he based it upon American economic interests. Uh, he was going to put American economic interests first. What's so outrageous from so many countries' point of view, it's our emissions that are hurt desperately hurting some poor countries in particular. Um, So for us to pull out and base it upon economic self-interest is seen by most of the world as an outrageous breach of of national responsibility. And and, uh, that's the way it's being talked about here. I've been into uh, a number of meetings in which uh, countries were, um, on the one hand, expressing outrage, but on the other hand, thankful that uh, Jerry Brown and some of the states are here uh, claiming that they will still try to meet the, the, the Obama commitment. So it's not all the, the, the outrage, which is really, really strong here. And, and Americans don't fully understand why the outrage is appropriate. Um, it's not directed against all Americans, but it's directed against the Trump administration. And it's particularly coming from those countries, there are, there are countries here that are pleading with the rich countries to stop what they're doing. They're already suffering. Uh, Chad and Niger and um, Mali, um, I've been t- talking to the people. They're, they're talking about uh, drought that's already destroying farming. Uh, there, there are uh, countries, uh, uh, Fiji, I was discussed, talking with Fiji, Fiji's the storms are getting bigger. It's killing people and destroying houses. So for the United States, which is by far the largest polluter in the world, in, not in terms of tons, but in terms of per capita and historical emissions, to say it's not going to cooperate because it's, because it's not in America's economic interest to do so is rightly seen as an outrageously selfish um, morally reprehensible position given the other thing that's happening here is that um, the, 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 the scientists are saying that the warming is uh, there's a lot of reasons to be afraid that we're going to uh, it's too late to limit the warming to two degrees centigrade 
which has profound consequences for the climate system. You know, there are a lot of questions that arise from the Trump administration pulling out of, of, of Paris. You know, something that I have heard from a number of people that uh, they're, what they're concerned about is that the United States pulling out gives license to other nations to say, well, if the United States is not going to meet its goals or even attempt to meet its goals that the the Obama administration had agreed to, then why should we? Why should we, you know, spend money, do the things that uh, we have to do to meet these goals when the second largest polluter on the earth is not? What about that? Well, that, that in fact, has been excuse of countries in other years. If the United States won't do it, we won't do it. But actually here... um, I think the sentiment is all countries are, are, are saying that they will, in fact, adopt policies to meet the Paris. There's been a change in the world. Um, most countries believe that climate change is real. As someone said yesterday, 10 years ago, we thought the world was burning up, but we didn't know exactly uh, what its causes were. Then they said the world is burning up, and we know the causes, and we really have to do something about it. So. Every place I have been, there has been strong, very strong international support for every country doing its fair share. Um, so countries that used to not do anything, like the OPEC countries, they're actually saying that they will, um, they will make significant contributions. So my reading is that, that there has been a change. The change has been triggered in part by a growing sense of the, the catastrophic potential for harm that uh, that the, the global warming we're seeing uh, could create. Don, what about uh, China and India? Those were the two countries that uh, many people would point to when they would be, I don't know if you go with, you know, those who are obviously skeptical of climate change, but those who thought that the United States was doing too much uh, in comparison to those two countries, for example. What about China and India? And as we know, here in the past week or so, uh, there has been in, in India just some catastrophic pollution where people can't even see two feet in front of their 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 faces so what about those two countries well china and india are here saying they really get climate change they will really do their fair share uh china has the largest pavilion here china sees this front they're going around the world saying uh the united states will not help you but we will uh, China sees this from a geopolitical standpoint as a plus for them. So China is being now viewed by a lot of the poorer countries as, uh, as a leader. China's going around the world. They're selling huge amounts of solar energy and wind energy. They are talking here as if they want to be the leader on climate change. Now, their target is not that strong. The target they've agreed to is uh, that um, uh, 20% of their economy will be renewable energy uh, by 2030, at at which time the the emissions will stop going down. But they have canceled uh, 70-some coal-fired power plants. China really, really gets the significance of this problem, in my view. There's a lot more going on in China than most Americans are aware of. Four provinces have cap-and-trade programs. 
They are developing a cap-and-trade program for the entire country of China. Um, and again, they are starting to uh, be a leader on renewable energy, I think for selfish reasons, not, not necessarily because of compassion for the rest of the world, but they're trying to uh, get a reputation here as being uh, technical support that the poorest countries need. North Korea continued to test missiles throughout the year that could be used to deliver a nuclear warhead to the United States. President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un exchanged tough talk throughout the year, threatening one another in the harshest terms. The Trump administration wanted China to do more to bring North Korea under control. In October, we spoke with Shi Gunshu, a professor of political science and international relations at Bucknell University. What is North Korea trying to do? What is their end game, in your opinion? Um, I think North Korea actually has been very consistent over the years in terms of their objectives. I think, number one, they really need to uh, recognition by the United States. Uh, they want to officially end the, the Korean War. They want a peace treaty instead of armistice agreement. And, of course, they also want uh, lots of economic aid to help the economy. So those are the three major objectives. I think they have never changed over the years. But if they haven't changed, they're not very well recognized here in the United States, even by American leaders. Why not come right out and say that this is what we're looking for? Well, they, well, they have a unique way of yes, making, they do. Make, yeah, making their statements. Uh, the problem is, um, I think uh, there's a lack of trust between the United States and North Korea. And uh, they're not even talking to each other right now. So I think each time they uh, launch a missile or, or uh, do a nuclear test, it's, it's their statement. They're, they're, it's a, their unique way of inviting the United States to, to the negotiating table to talk about those issues. But, of course, over the years, uh, the United States has rejected uh, their, their, their initiatives. And so, so that's why we have this uh, stalemate now. You know, there are many people here in the U.S. when they describe Kim Jong-un, uh, describe him as being unstable. I mean, there, you hear words like crazy, nuts, that uh, he has a mental illness, that uh, he, he really has, you know, in fact, the president has gone as far as saying, he, uh, you know, so many words that he has a death wish. Uh, what about that? How, how, you know, how would you describe Kim Jong-un? Yeah. Yeah we, we, yeah, we heard a lot of uh, descriptions of Kim Jong-un, like he's he's mad man, you know. Uh, well, I think, I don't think he's mad. I think, actually, he's very uh, calculating. Um, he knows how to play the games. Um, it's like a, a tail wagging the dogs. I mean, the United States and China are big dogs, I guess. Uh, so, um, if, actually, even during the Cold War, uh, Kim Jong's uh, grandfather, his father, both played uh, the games pretty well. They played the Soviet Union and China against each other. And now uh, they're dealing with the United States and China. And looks like, you know, they are not uh, losing any anything in this game. So I don't think, you know, uh, Kim Jong-un is mad or is crazy. He, he's very smart, I would argue. But when you say he, he knows how to play the game, it's a very dangerous game he's playing. Yes, it is very dangerous, of course. And, of course, I think he also understands the limits. That's why I don't think, you know, he will uh, intentionally provoke the United States. I don't think he will launch an attack on the United States directly, unprovoked. I think he understands that's suicidal. That's why, you know, uh, uh, we need to take his uh, threat seriously, but at the same time, 
we don't have to be overly worried. I think the, the number one important thing is to, to really sit down and talk to him, you know, and understand what, what he really wants and what we can do, you know, to solve this problem. Let's turn to China, because we do have some questions about China's role in this. Uh, President Trump travels to uh, China next month, where he's expected to put pressure on China to do more to rein in North Korea. Now, the, the, Trump has already said in, in tweets uh, that China could easily solve the North Korean problem. You don't think so. Why? <laughs> well, again, uh, the Again, to me, this is a consistency issue or inconsistency issue. Uh, sometimes President Trump said, well, China, President Xi is a good friend of mine. You know, China has done great. Uh, China has helped us a lot. Uh, other times he would say that, well, China has not done enough. And uh, we, we have our own channels. We will talk to North Korea directly. So, again, uh, it's, it's confusing. Uh, I think, again, uh, President Trump needs to uh, uh, make sure that uh, he has a consistent uh, approach uh, dealing with uh, North Korea, but also in, in talking to the Chinese, to Japanese or South Koreans, you know, exactly what is the U.S. intention? What do we want out of it? Well, but why don't you believe, you know, specifically that China can put the kind of pressure on North Korea to get them to, uh, if not, I mean, they're not going to abandon a nuclear program. I mean, I think that's pretty, uh, pretty evident that uh, they're not going to do that unless they get some major, major concessions. Just don't see that happening. But uh, anyway, uh, what could China do? Well, uh, th- there's not much China can do. You know, I think the bottom line is. China values relations with North uh, with with the United States definitely more than its relations with North Korea, uh, but it's 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 found in this dilemma. Uh, I I don't think China likes the situation because after North Korea goes nuclear, you know, others may may be tempted to uh, uh, go nuclear too. Like I mean, they already talked about South Korea and Japan go nuclear. Even even Taiwan has uh, <laughs> floated with that idea, uh, but. Uh, China also has its problem of, of uh, stability and border security. I mean, if China puts too much pressure on North Korea, well, that regime will collapse. And you can expect the millions of refugees cross into China, and you will have a tremendous humanitarian, economic, social, political challenges for China. I don't think China is ready for that. And also, from an economic perspective, you know, many border areas in China actually depend on limited trade with North Korea. If you shut down all trade with North Korea, these border areas of China will have a difficult time. Um, so it, it's, it's a terrible situation for China. I mean, I think China really wants to help uh, the United States, but then it has its limits. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Last September, President Trump ordered an end to the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. The program was installed by former President Obama to protect young adults brought to the U.S. illegally as youths from deportation. Obama was criticized for enacting the program via executive order. Smart Talk discussed what lies in store for dreamers, as they're called, in central Pennsylvania with Carrie Carranza legal immigration counselor and program advocate with Church World Services in Lancaster. Carlos Apafo Gonzalez, a coordinator with the Pennsylvania Immigration and Citizenship Coalition and a DACA participant. And Jill Family, a Widener University Commonwealth Law Professor of Law and Government specializing in immigrant and DACA law.
Carlos Adolfo Gonzalez, I want to start with you. And I'm not going to ask you to tell your story right off the bat, mm -hmm. but you did come to this country, to the United States, uh, at the age of 11 with your mother from the Dominican Republic. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I wanted to start off by just getting your thoughts on the announcement this week that the DACA program may end. Your thoughts on that? Um, so we knew that the DACA program was probably not going to last all four years based on the campaign promise, but to rescind the order before we had a permanent solution to this issue, uh, I thought was very responsible and um, it really ignores the benefits of the program, we have, with, with, which have been many, um, and the widespread support for, for beneficiaries like me. And there has been widespread support. Uh, most polls show that uh, two-thirds of Americans supporting allow, uh, allowing uh, DACA recipients to, to stay in this country. So, Carrie Carranza with uh, Church World Services, your thoughts? I definitely agree with Carlos. I think it was irresponsible to pull the rug out from these uh, young undocumented people. Uh, if, if Congress doesn't deliver something, a permanent solution in six months, it's not just that DACA is gone. These people now become vulnerable to deportation, and they'll be deported to a place that they don't know. They've grown up here since a young age. This is their home, and it would just cause uh, an extreme amount of stress. Uh, so I think it was just very irresponsible and definitely did not uh, follow the, the promises he made to deal with DACA recipients with heart. Well, and we're going to talk about that, too. Is you mentioned the six months. Where it stands right now, the Trump administration announced earlier this week it was ending the program within six months, but the president also turned it over to Congress to maybe come up with a solution. So that's what we'll be referring to. Jill family, uh, looking at this from a legal point of view. Disappointing. Um, I think that this was purely a political decision that was sort of couched in legal terms. Um, first, let me explain that there was this artificial September 5th deadline that actually had been created by a bunch of attorneys general who had threatened to sue the Republican, Trump administration. Right, exactly. Right. If they didn't end DACA by September 5th. So there was no deadline, really, that um, the Trump administration had to do anything about this. Um, and so, you know, Trump sort of adopted that false deadline and then um, Attorney General Sessions argued that, you know, they had to end DACA because it was unlawful. And, you know, I just respectfully disagree with that legal conclusion. I helped draft a letter that over 100 law professors signed that argued that DACA is legal and that it should have been defended in court. All right. So let's talk about that since uh, you, you jumped to the political and also the legal uh, part of this. Uh, as Carlos had mentioned, that the uh, you know, the president had campaigned as a candidate saying, I mean, we've heard over the last week or so many sound bites from the campaign where he said, well, I'm going to end DACA right off the bat, would get big cheers from uh, the, the people at the rallies, that kind of thing. So he was elected even after making that promise. Mm -hmm. He claims that uh, what former President Obama did was unconstitutional because it was done by an, uh, an executive order rather than legislatively. Talk about that aspect, if you would. Sure. So it actually wasn't an executive order. It was just um, executive action. So DACA was actually created by a memo, a, a memorandum from the then Secretary of Homeland Security. 
And really all it is is an exercise of prosecutorial discretion. So the Secretary of Homeland Security said to, you know, the rest of the immigration agency, you know, we've got to prioritize who um, is our, are our priorities for removal. And, you know, we think that people that meet these characteristics um, should not be priorities for removal. And so we're putting them at the bottom of the list and we're going to give them something called deferred action, which has existed in immigration law for for decades. I mean, this is not a DACA specific thing. And deferred action is a way for um, the Immigration Enforcement Agency to signal to someone you're a low priority. And um, so... For for me, this DACA is just another kind of prosecutorial discretion, something that's been done in immigration law, you know, since the beginning of immigration law. And um, there's no there's no reason not to defend it in court. Okay, but let me and here are the buts. Sure. Uh, it's still even if it was not uh, an executive order and it was prosecutorial uh, discretion. It was not done legislatively. The right. Congress did not <clears throat> act upon it. I mean, for years now, for 20 years at least, we've been hearing this is a federal issue. The Congress of the United mm-hmm. States has to do something, and they have. Well, and I think it's important to distinguish between what Congress could do and what the president could do. So DACA, because it was created by a memorandum, um, is not a legal immigration status. And so I think the situation that we've all now found ourselves in just proves um, that what the president was doing through DACA was not doing the same thing that Congress could do. So if Congress amends the Immigration and Nationality Act um, to allow someone uh, who qualifies for DACA to be put on a path to a legal status, that's a permanent legal status that um, could not be rescinded by someone like Attorney General Sessions just standing up one day and saying, now it's rescinded. The only way you could rescind it would be by passing another statute. So I know it sounds like a technical legal distinction, but it's actually very important. And that's what makes DACA legal is that um, it didn't do the same thing that a statute could do. So Carlos, just what uh, Professor Family uh, described, and we'll just take the words literally. Uh, basically, just what that describes is a prosecutor's discretion of whether they would want to prosecute uh, you or someone else for being in this country illegally. I mean, we're talking about human beings. We're talking about you. We're talking about your future. future. How does it make it make you feel when you hear that at a prosecutor's discretion, you could be, uh, the, you know, they may pursue a case to have you deported. Um, the uncertainty is is real. Um, so, like I said, like we always knew DACA was not going to be a permanent. We were hoping the Congress was going to act. But in light of congressional gridlock, DACA was a great choice. It was the only choice, really, that I had to live uh, resemblance of a normal life in this country. Um, I think a lot of people that support repealing it they don't really understand what it did. It's basically protection for deportation for two years and a work permit. It doesn't qualify us for any type of public benefits whatsoever, and we are not eligible, like like Professor Family mentioned, to apply for any type of legal status or long-term legal status. So, you know, this is a predicament that I've been now for the past 15 years and, and that I want a permanent solution to, and that's why I urge Congress to act in the next six months before people start losing their protections that are subject to deportation like me. 
Okay, so tell us your story. You came to this country, as I mentioned, at the age of 11 from the Dominican Republic mm-hmm. with your mother. Uh, talk a little bit about why yeah. uh, your your family came here and what you've been doing since. Yes, so um, the decision to immigrate uh, happened three years after my father passed away. You know, my mother had, as someone that had very little uh, formal education in the Dominican Republic, a very hard time uh, with a deteriorating economy uh, to support us. You know, she had two young children to support, um, and she did what she could. She went back to trade school. She started home business in the Dominican Republic, selling pastries and, and you know, anything that she could from our home. But it was just not enough. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, you know, immigration is a very tough decision to make. You know, you're talking about coming to a country that you don't know much about, that you don't speak the language. Um, but, you know, she did what I think any parent would want to do, and that is... Uh, try to provide better opportunities for their, their children, right? She, she has sacrificed her, her own dreams and, in many cases, her health working in this country so that I can live my life and, and be here in front of you um, talking about this. So, you know, thanks to Doc, I've been able to finish my education. I've been able to, uh, you know, complete two masters abroad and, and finally work and pay uh, taxes, right? And, you know, I paid about a third of my income in taxes. And I'm, and I'm happy to do that because I know that's what it takes to, you know, to fund public schools and, and, and make sure seniors get their benefits of Social Security. You know, so, um, you know, for someone to argue that, you know, my presence in this country is, is a negative, you know, it's very offensive, especially to, you know, everything that I've done already in this country and I continue to do. So you've been, you said that this is something that has weighed on you for the 15 years mm-hmm. that uh, you have lived here in the United States. Tell me about that. I mean, as a child, you even thought about it or just as as you were getting older? So there's always uncertainty, right? As a child, my main concern was how do I get into college? The main reason we came here was so we can get uh, an education. Um, So that was my main concern. Once I I was able to go to college, uh, the the decision was or the uncertainty was what do I do after I graduate without a work permit? Is my degree or my degrees, are they just going to be papers on the wall? Um, which is not the reason why I got them in the first place, right? It's to contribute to society. What was your major? So I did political science at Amherst College uh, as an undergrad, and, and I got one in political economy, another one in global affairs, um, one from the University of Cambridge and the other one from Tsinghua University in China. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump campaigned for the presidency on the promise he would overturn the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Unable to pass its repeal in Congress, Trump rolled back a key element of the ACA, federal subsidies aiding low-income recipients of Obamacare. He also walked back a mandate that kept employers from barring employees from accessing contraception through employer-based health care plans. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro was one of a number of attorneys general across the country that sued. The Trump administration again broke the law and undermined the health and economic independence of women in Pennsylvania and across the United States. In a nutshell, his administration made it possible for employers to deny women access to basic medical care in violation of the federal law. He issued two new rules that together allow any company, including you know publicly traded large for-profit companies, to deny women insurance coverage for basic medically needed contraceptive care under either what's called a religious exemption or even a moral exemption uh, or exception. And I believe this is a reckless and unlawful expansion of a prior, you know, very narrow, narrowly tailored rule. It violates federal law, 
which requires insurance companies to cover preventative health care services with no copay. Now, it's important for your listeners to know that 50% of women who access contraceptive care do so, do so for medical reasons that have nothing to do with birth control. And I recognize that there are, you know, very strong opinions on both sides of the aisle as it relates uh, to birth control. I obviously have my opinion that it should be uh, accessible. But this is also a public health issue for so many women. And it's also an, an issue of cost. There are two and a half million Pennsylvania women and their families who are now affected by the president's unlawful decision who are going to have to pay more at basic health care. You know, before the Affordable Care Act, the existed, one in three women struggled to afford birth control. Today, as a result of this, that number is less than 4%. And with an average cost of about $1,200 for women to pay for uh, contraceptive care prior to the Affordable Care Act, you're putting an undue hardship from a health perspective and from a cost perspective on Pennsylvania women and on American women. Uh, and we're not going to stand for it. Mm. We are going to leave sued, and we're hopeful that uh, we will prevail in court. Uh, and protect this mandate for women here in Pennsylvania and across the United States. So just to clarify, again, what part of the law are you basing your suit on when it comes to contraception? Sure. Um, let's sort of look at it in three different parts, because we think the president violated the law in uh, three different ways. First, it violates the Fifth Amendment due process clause and denies women equal protection under the law. Um, second, it violates the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which is part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, and violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. What it, what it also violates, and this may not be as sexy, but it's a really important part uh, of the law, is something called the Administrative Procedures Act. And let me just kind of summarize that for you in a nutshell. Any president can go out and try and promulgate new rules, but you have to file follow a process, which is basically four parts. Number one, you have to state that you're going to put forth a new rule. Number two, you have to actually publish that new rule. Number three, there has to be time for public comment on that rule. And then fourth, it gets formally adopted. Well, the president just went to step four and ignored the first three steps and violates the Administrative Procedures Act. So for all of those reasons, um, the president violated the law. And again, I recognize there are strong feelings about the Affordable Care Act. There are strong feelings about contraceptive, you know, access to contraception for women. And I'm not denying people those feelings. I respect people on both sides of this policy debate. But this isn't right now about policy. I'm going to leave that up to Congress and the president. This is about following the rule of law. And the president, again, has failed to do that by virtue of this action. I'm, I'm curious, the establishment cause, clause of the Constitution uh, that says that Congress shall establish no religion, uh, how does that fit into this? So uh, effectively what you're doing is you're allowing a CEO or a board of directors to elevate their religious or moral views above that of the rights of women uh, in this commonwealth and, and in this country. And the manner in which this you know, president's action allows that to occur, uh, I believe violates women's constitutional rights. 
Just last week, a federal judge in Philadelphia temporarily blocked President Trump's decision to roll back Obamacare's requirement that employers provide birth control to workers at no cost. Some of President Trump's harshest criticism has been directed at the media. A survey released last month found only about half the nation trusted the media. On Smart Talk, Dan Shelley, executive director of the Radio Television Digital News Association, addressed the situation. It's, it's very frustrating and shocking, and, and uh, to some journalists, uh, it's, it's a bit intimidating. But, but the, the answer to these attacks on journalism is, frankly, more and better journalism. And thank goodness we're seeing a lot of that uh, as uh, news organizations all across the country have stepped up their games and are, are, are being more transparent about what they're reporting and how they're reporting it uh, in a precise effort to try to rebuild trust with the public. We're going to be talking about that here, something that the WITF is, is involved in a project. Uh, but how did it get this way, Dan? Well, it's always been this way to some degree. Uh, there's always been a segment of the population that either doesn't like or doesn't understand the proper role of uh, the the legitimate or what I call responsible journalism, uh, you know, industry, if you will, or craft. Uh, they, they've just been emboldened within the past couple of years or so to uh, a much greater degree because of, in part, uh, some of the uh, vitriol that, that's being spewed by some of uh, our nation's top political leaders uh, and uh, their supporters. You know, many have said that, uh, in the soundbite you played earlier from uh, from the president during the campaign, many have said that's a dog whistle to people, that it's okay to lash out. Uh, I, I don't think that's a dog whistle. I think that's a bullhorn. And I think the, the, the call uh, to those people who have always uh, under the surface, uh, felt distrust for the media for whatever reason. Uh, it, it's been uh, a loud call to them uh, that it's okay to, to act out and to lash out. Don't get me wrong. People have a right to criticize the media. Absolutely. And an, ex- and an expectation to hold us accountable. Uh, and we have an expectation, more important, to be held accountable for our actions, to be transparent about what we as journalists do. Uh, when we make mistakes, as all human beings do, uh, we have a responsibility to correct them promptly and to hold those responsible accountable. As you just saw uh, late last week, uh, the Brian Ross uh, error in a breaking news story about uh, the Michael Flynn guilty plea. Uh, ABC News acted swiftly to correct that error and suspended Brian Ross for four weeks without pay and has now announced that he will no longer be allowed to cover any news associated with Donald Trump. So ABC took some swift action, uh, and uh, earlier this year, CNN made a mistake in uh, an online report uh, and fired an entire unit of uh, digital investigative reporters uh, because uh, that mistake was made. They promptly corrected that error. So it's okay to criticize journalism and journalists and news organizations but just to, to, to say, you know, we're, we're leftist and we're anti-American, uh, that, I believe, is, is, uh, is a gross uh, – I don't want to use the word abuse because the individual who left that voicemail and the people who trolled me after the Walmart story broke uh, nationally, uh, they have a right to speak out. Thank you for listening to 2017 Top Stories of the Year on Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar.